Hello, hello. Happy eight weeks, everyone. We're officially two months into the Lifelong Podcast, and I could not be more excited or thrilled to have launched this podcast and be bringing on so many incredible people across holistic health, longevity, low toxic living, etc. For those of you that are new here, my name is Heidi Kumjan. Thank you so much for being here. I am a certified holistic health and nutrition coach with a passion for low toxic living and longevity. And so this show, Lifelong, is all about that. And every week I'm bringing you a new episode on those subjects, interviewing some of the most amazing people, including today's guest, Dr. Ailey Cohen. Dr. Ailey wrote a book that I actually read when I was starting my journey into low toxic living and really just trying to familiarize myself and educate myself on the toxins in our world and what I can do about it. So she co-authored this book called Non-Toxic Guide to Living Healthy in a Chemical World. Dr. Ailey Cohen is a triple board certified physician and an environmental health expert. She brings a medical and scientific lens to low toxic living. So grab a notepad because this episode is jam-packed with good information and also solutions that you can begin implementing today. So please join me in welcoming the incredible, the smart, the pioneer in the world of environmental toxins, Dr. Ailey Cohen. Hey, Dr. Cohen. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to have you here today. We were just chatting um, before I started to hit record, and I have to show everyone the book that Dr. Cohen co-authored with Dr. Frederick Vomsall. And I just wanted to shout it out right away from the beginning because this is one of the books I read when I was kind of beginning my research in environmental toxins. So I am beyond thrilled to have you here today to hear you share your story, talk about some of these chemicals and really dive deeper into this because you are truly such an expert. And again, just so thrilled to have you here. Well, it's my pleasure and thanks for reaching out because I'm always happy to share good information that's really important to health and wellness. Awesome. Well, let's get started by diving into your story with your dog, Truxton. I know this is kind of where it all began somewhat. So would you mind sharing that story and maybe just updating everyone on kind of how you got to where you are today? Um, yeah, I'm happy to share the story. And it's a really it's a truthful story. And it's a story that, you know, and some of us, some of the people in your audience have stories that really change the whole trajectory of their lives. Um, I had uh, a golden retriever. My husband and I had a puppy golden retriever. He was gorgeous named Truxton. He was our firstborn. So we got him right after we got married around that time. And he was my baby. And then we had kids um, and they were young kids. But then Truxton started to kind of exhibit symptoms of not feeling well. And we kind of figured out oh, he just swallowed a sock or something that Goldens do. And he always, you know, chewed on his red rubber toy. And he always, you know, we live in New Jersey. So I was always, you know, conscious of, um, 
a little bit conscious of his environment since we live on a farm area. But he got sick. And at the time he was diagnosed, which is pretty immediate, we found out that he had what was called autoimmune hepatitis, which means that the body, his body was attacking himself at the liver. So humans get this, but it's very rare, Um, probably more and more common nowadays with all the chemicals we have, which we can go into, but it's very rare in dogs. And this was about 12 years ago. Actually, I would say this is almost my son's turning 14, my older one. So it's probably around the time when he was one. So about 13 years ago or two. And, um, you know, I had two young babies and then I found out this dog was really sick. And, you know, it's something that you can't really reverse because at the time he was diagnosed, his liver was the size of maybe a large golf ball or maybe a tennis ball. And, um, you know, he really had to be on immune suppressant medications when many of the ones I use for humans because I'm an autoimmune disease doctor. So the ironies really were deep. Anyway, long story short, as I was trying to figure out what made him sick, which was so unusual, even not just dogs, but in golden retrievers as a breed, as we found out from our veterinarian, um, I started to really question, well, what could have made this dog get sick? It had to have been his environment because he was an otherwise healthy dog. Could have been his air quality from pesticides in New Jersey. Could it have been maybe his food was contaminated? So I checked labels and I researched his food. I looked into his pesticide, uh, I'm sorry, his uh, flea and tick chemicals that we used to apply to the back of his neck and didn't think much of, right? I hardly ever washed my hands afterwards. Um, you know, we looked at his plastic toy and I read up about vinyl and plastic and plastic toys and how little regulation there were on pretty much everything I was researching for pets. But it really opened up a Pandora's box of all of the lack of regulation in human products, things we buy off the shelf and think that it's been tested for all sorts of horrible things. And in fact, that's not the case. And it really took me, I would say, about a four year period reaching out to environmental working group, places I respect their work, um, reaching out to researchers who actually created many of the the major um, uh, experiments around the world, really trying to say, is this true? Is it true that the United States has no required testing for safety or toxicity for any of the ingredients that go into the products that we use every day, from baby products to personal care products to food chemicals, uh, which we have over 12 Uh, I think it's actually 3,000 food additive chemicals at this point. It keeps growing every year. So it was pretty much a mind-blowing time in my life as a physician, by the way. Even practicing medicine, I'd never heard this in medical school or college or high school, let alone, or, you know, science classes and how these chemicals may work in the human body. So the idea was pretty astounding. And that's that's really the story. Truxton did end up passing away. Um, he became the sort of the impetus for all the work I do. Um, I did a TED talk that talked about this this kind of learning experience. And um, and that's really organically how I got into the world of environmental health. And I, I don't think I'll be doing, I would have been doing environmental health had he lived a long, healthy life, believe it or not. So, you know, I owe him a lot. Yeah. Wow. Thank you for sharing that story. It's definitely, it's heartbreaking that your, you know, your beloved golden had to go through such a thing, but you certainly made lemonade and found the silver lining. And now your whole entire career path has changed and the work you're doing is so, so profound. So I really, really appreciate you sharing that. So, oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I think that, you know, like you said, lemons, um, turning lemonade out of lemons, you know, the idea was that um, 
you know, this stuff really started to build on my, my knowledge started to build my relationships with people doing the bench research, not manufacturing started to build. Then I started getting into understanding all of our regulatory failures. And then I learned about drinking water contaminants. And so every offshoot really spiraled. And, um, and I really connected myself with the science because I knew that no matter what I found out, I had to understand the science that underlies these issues and how, these exposures, I mean, the punchline really is that these chemicals that we are now surrounded in, um, 95,000 chemicals at this point, um, in everything from, you know, fabric chemicals that are stain guarded, scotch guarded, nonstick, you know, fragrances that are in perfumes like phthalates, the whole huge class of phthalate chemicals that keep fragrance lasting longer, um, you know, and things on shelves longer, um, chemicals like BPA that are in the lining of our cans, all of our canned food and food packaging has an enormous amount of chemicals that contribute, um, into our body through the food they carry, the drinks they carry. So understanding how this just a complete ubiquity of chemicals affects human health and it reduces um, reduces health and increases risk for many both acute illnesses like asthma and allergies that are kind of come on fast and also the chronic conditions such as you know diabetes and all these metabolic issues hypertension heart disease autoimmune disease um, allergies uh, that are long term so you know it's really um, it's really been a learning curve and I think the more I learn, the more angry I get and the more um, tenacious I get about getting this material into places that normally don't even support it and should. Yeah, no, it's it's absolutely wild. The fact that we have these, you know, regulatory, pro, you know, government, whatever, you, you think they're looking out for us. And I think certain people you know within those organizations mean well and they are doing some good i'm not here to be doom and gloom but we really need to wake up and think oh my gosh how can we have 95,000 plus chemicals that aren't even studied on human health and we're exposed to these on a daily basis it's no wonder that everyone has some type of ailment or you know autoimmune is going up cancer is so prevalent it's it's extremely sad but it's also very motivating in a way when you start learning this information i at least have felt very empowered learning this and realizing okay i can make a change i can make a change for myself i can try to influence people around me in a very gentle way, just by leading by example. You know, with this information, you you can never really force it onto someone, especially when there would be so many years of unlearning that a person needs to do. But I, yeah, personally agree with you in terms of getting frustrated when you learn more. But on the flip side, I feel really happy that I'm figuring it out and realizing, okay, wait, now I learned about a new chemical that is dangerous, but at least I know. You know what I mean? Right. And and that's exactly, you're describing human nature. Look, I color my hair, as you can see. I'm not a, I was a true blonde when I was born, but since then, <laughs> um, you know, we all, it's a journey for everybody. And I realized that with my journey. I mean, when I first started learning about these chemicals and all of the the problems with our system that does not, you know, it favors manufacturing. So really we're not privy to 
any of the ingredients, even in the word fragrance or perfume on a label. I mean, that could have three, 400 chemicals just in the word. And yet a consumer is not allowed to know that information necessarily. Um, You know, it's a journey. So when I started to pick away at each of these concepts, I started making changes in a very slow but deliberate way. I remember the day that I opened up a drawer in my kitchen and threw away, I would say 20 plug-in fresheners that had names like Ocean Breeze and Strawberry (laughs) Fields and, you know, take me away from my screaming children. And, you know, (laughs) it's like, it's one of those things where you buy into the marketing and then you realize you're literally bringing in toxic material into your body and that you can actually measure blood levels from these exposures, that they are so involved in your body that just like oxygen, you know, air freshening chemicals, fragrance from everything goes into our lungs, but then goes into our bloodstream just like oxygen would. So you can measure these blood levels and some of them may last longer in your blood. Sometimes they break down sooner. I mean, some chemicals last forever, like the perfluoralkyls, which are the non-stick chemicals from non-stick pans, um, from stain guard, from, uh, um, Gore-Tex, you know, raincoats. I mean, it's mm-hmm. like it goes on and on and on, but those stick around forever because of the compound and the way they're made. They're made with a fluorine component, a fluorine chemical, which is an element on our elements table if you're back in middle school. And because of those halogenated chemicals, not only do they last forever and are tightly bound to their, their structure, but they can also get into places where we need halogens like iodine. Iodine is part of you know, the human body and protecting the thyroid gland. So you can see how it's not just about affecting the earth and break down into our water and our soil, which is where a lot of these chemicals end up going, which come back to be our drinking water, but they also stick in our body and actually knock off and fight for the same locations in the body that are needed by healthful nutrients. And so it's not just one thing to remove them. It's also a matter of also being nutritionally set as well by eating clean food, eating a variety of vegetables and fruits, um, preferably organic or at least washed for removing those uh, you know, pesticide residues, and to also keep the gut microbiome healthy, which is where a lot of our food and drink comes into the body. You want to make sure that your gut, which is the reservoir of our immune system and our brain, believe it or not, come through the gut. And so it's a combination of removing chemicals that are harmful that we know of. That's what the book is about. And also adding in the things that make our bodies actually thrive and protect us from the results of those chemicals. Yeah, definitely. The gut certainly plays such a huge role. And I would say that, you know, glyphosate is such a very uh, frustrating and triggering one, especially for the gut and just the amount of toxin, you know, just the stress it puts on your body. Can you share a little bit about glyphosate and how that, uh, like what it does to your body? glyphosate Sure. Well, they all work differently. So the glyphosate is the most commonly used herbicide in in the country and almost around the world. It's still being used in many, many other countries, although Mexico removed it. European uh, European Union is considering banning glyphosate. Um, And there are many parks around the United States that have the ability from their local um, uh, government to remove it from public spaces like Miami is doing that. New York is considering a bill on this. There are over 7,000 pesticides uh, marketed in the United States. You know, the ability to use 7,000 in almost anything in this country is pretty remarkable. Glyphosate is just one of them. 
and uh, and they come out with new ones pretty much, you know, dozens a year. And in fact, I know this personally because I'm working with my local farmer to swap out everyone that comes up. He's going to be using on my field out back, not my field, but their neighboring fields. And I have to research them and argue with him as to why it's a problem. And it's, it's a it's a whack-a-mole. Um, but the idea is that we have thousands of them. They have been around since the 1950s when pesticides really exploded onto the market market because of World War II. Soldiers were going overseas and it was a matter of protecting them against pestilence in those environments, be it malaria, uh, you know, um, tick-borne, mosquito-borne illnesses. And so, you know, the age of chemicals in the 1940s, 50s, 60s really made all of these chemicals explode in terms of their numbers and their ubiquity. Glyphosate is just one of them, but glyphosate has many health effects on the human body. It is an endocrine disruptor. It is considered a probable carcinogen by the um, IARC, which is the International Agency on Research for Cancer. Um, Some major high-profile lawsuits just went down over the past couple of years, particularly with, um, you know, grounds workers at schools, uh, one of which had, um, I believe it was multiple myeloma, um, and there's other linked uh, blood cancers like leukemia is connected to long-term exposure. And that's Roundup. So in case people are planning to garden, because spring is happening here um, in New Jersey, you know, gardening has become a very popular hobby and many people still buy Roundup. It's not banned now until 2025, I believe, as res- for residential use, but it has been banned. It's still being used commercially. So the idea is that for things such as Roundup, which we think of as just some benign little weed killer, it actually has remarkable effects on the human body. Um, from an endocrine disruption perspective, it can affect hormones, but it can also, as I said, mention, mention it can cause, uh, it can be associated with higher risk cancers. And, um, you know, I think we have to pay attention, especially when you have pets running around your lawn, you have kids running around your lawn, you track shoes into the house, which is one of the recommendations I, I give out of many for this book is, you know, consider taking your shoes off or at least having a bucket, you know, outside of your home um, to really take off shoes, um, so that you don't get involved with any of the chemicals. And I don't recommend lawn spraying either. I think people don't realize that all of these companies meant to keep your lawn so spark, you know, spotless without any weeds is a waste. It's, it's, it's actually pretty toxic. And if you just cut your uh, lawn more regularly, you can actually save money and also not have this infestation of chemicals every time you step out your door. And it's regenerative farming that's become a very big part of the world now. Regenerative farming is basically cycling back the carbon and all the nutrients from soil back into the soil. And what's been going on is, you know, with our conventional agriculture around the world, including the United States, of course, is that we're taking plants from the soil and that takes all the the nutrients with it, but we're not giving anything back. So what has become an actual problem, and again, this is a portion of the book that I talk about in terms of our nutrient value of our food is that we're re- we're reducing the nutrient value of our food. So even if you buy organic produce and vegetables, even if they're frozen, which is great to do, you know, as long as you put them in glass and stainless steel to heat them up. But organic really is about reducing chemical exposure from pesticides, which is really quite important. But the other, the flip side of that is it doesn't mean that it has any better nutrient value than, you know, non-organic food. And so, 
you know, it can't have chemicals, but it doesn't mean that that soil isn't um, weak and or that food has traveled a far distance to get to a big box store and you have your organic section, but it might have been traveling or frozen for six months. So the idea is that you really want to think about how do you get the most rich, nutrient rich foods, even if it's organic or not, you want to think about that. And one of the things to do is buy flash frozen or frozen vegetables usda organic is cheaper it's available at all the big box stores and it maintains all the nutrient value when it's picked because they flash freeze it so that's one way to save costs and have better access to organic food and have nutrient value that matters another way is to actually support local farmers that are doing organic farming go to farmers markets when they're seasonal and really think about buying stuff that was picked that morning and supporting local farmers for the good work they're doing Yeah, no, totally agree with you on all of that. Yes, regenerative practices are so important. I just watched this movie last weekend called The Sacred Cow. Have you heard of that movie? It was very, very interesting. Um, Just it, it it was focused mainly on the problems with conventional beef and talking about how. We can have cows, we can have cattle, we can eat meat in a very productive way that doesn't harm the planet, which was very interesting to me because you hear so much about, you know, beef is killing our planet, the carbon, whatever. These regenerative farmers are really onto the science and not just the carbon cycles, the, they're onto the mineral cycles, the water cycles, so many other cycles. And it was, it was beyond fascinating. So I'll put that in the show notes, but I also recommend watching it. It was really informative about regenerative agriculture. Well, it all matters. What we do to the planet does cycle back to the humans. In, fr- in fact, when it comes to even water quality, you know, we get runoff from agricultural setups from, you know, animal you know, uh, feeding lots um, from dead animals that are part of these lots from their sewage from these farming, you know, um, apparatus. And, you know, that goes into the water system and water systems from streams and lakes and aquifers actually become our drinking water. People don't really realize that. They go to the wastewater treatment plants or they go into a local well. So whatever we're doing to our environment, it's going to come back to haunt us in terms of even our quality of water um, that we drink and take for granted from municipal tap. Yeah, it's water is its whole own big thing. But oh my goodness, do you have a favorite water filter recommendation or a water brand? Yeah, let me let me tell people really quickly why they should care about water, which yeah. has actually become the most important part of my talks, in my opinion, because now yeah. having done this for a while, even though there's lots of horrible things to talk about, this is probably the one that I think is most important. Because yeah. when it comes to volume of what we eat or drink, water surpasses food in terms of how much we need. Um, We would die without drinking water if it was three days. We would not die without food. We could go weeks without food. So the idea about our bodies being made up of 85% of water, our bodies are water and all our organs are water. We need it to breathe. We need it to cushion our organs. There's so many reasons why we need 
good clean water, um, that if we don't get this right, it can be a real problem. And especially in, in pregnancy, and especially if you have an immune system disorder or you're elderly, which means that your, your immune system is also weakened over age, uh, through age. But the idea is that I recommend everyone drink uh, filtering their drinking water. And I'll tell you why. We have in the United States, 160,000 wastewater treatment plants. These are the places that are federally run to clean our drinking water. And 80% of the US population, 80, um, more like 86, drinks water from these wastewater treatment plants. The other 14% get their water from wells. Wells, when they're in the rural areas of different parts of the country and they don't have connections to the main water system. Um, so most of us get water from municipal treatment plants and these 160,000 plants actually follow a law from 50 years ago still. Wow. 50 years ago, the, the 1974 Safe Drinking Water Act, which only mandates that 91 chemicals that they have deemed as harmful at certain levels, 91 chemicals are managed through looking for them, measuring them, and then fixing it if they're too high, those levels. So wow. only 91 chemicals, but we have 95,000 that in fact can and do get into our drinking water systems, whether it's coal ash from, from electron, you know, the electrical industry and coal burning, fracking chemicals, um, manufacturing chemicals from storm runoff, even from flooding, um, pesticides, anything from agricultural, even fertilizers. Um, I mean, the list just goes on and on and on. Um, you know, uh, nucleotides like radon get into our drinking water. There's added chlorinated chemicals to clean bacteria, right? They have to add chlorinated chemicals that are pretty toxic in their own right, but they're needed to get rid of bacteria and viruses that perhaps can contaminate large large populations of people drinking from that treatment plant. So of course those are allowed, certain detergents are allowed to clean the water. And all of this is not removed once it's added. So it goes right out the other side, travels 20, 30 miles, whether there's breaks in that piping, whether there's PVC piping or lead piping, again, that contributes. So by the time you get a glass of water, it's pretty filthy. Yeah, and so um, and because they haven't updated the regulation of drinking water in terms of quality and safety in 50 years, um, we have a real problem. So that is the impetus to tell people to filter their water. And filtering means a carbon block at the simplest level, which is like a pitcher that people can think of, um, which is usually either a shakable carbon or a block. Blocks are better. Um, in terms of the surface area that's covered for that water when they pour it in. And then you have different types of filters all along that whole spectrum. And then the most aggressive that, that we can buy as consumers is called a reverse osmosis water filter. And I go through all of this in the book um, because it's really important. There's a whole chapter on drinking water. And I want people to know the pros and cons of each filter type and even the cost and the maintenance. Um, but reverse osmosis, which I generally want people to think about is more about upfront costs. It's about $300 more or less upfront to buy it, about $150 maximum for a plumber to put it in in one hour um, if they're just simply putting it under the kitchen sink. And it's about $40 a year to maintain the cartridges. So you don't even have to do that the first time you buy it, it would be a year later. So those upfront costs feel ugly to a lot of people and I'm sure financially can be overwhelming to some. But once you get through that, you really are living with a system that's far cheaper 
per glass of water. And so you don't have to buy bottled water. Plastic bottled water has its own problems. You, you know, you really are just sort of solving the problem up front and then kind of maintenancing throughout the next, you know, 10 years of its life. So, you know, that's kind of what I really try to get people to think about. It has to be well certified. There's all that in the book about how to really know a good filter company from a bad filter company. Yeah, you have so many great resources in that book. That's why it's it's truly a guide. And I remember you mentioning or emphasizing that this is really a guide. It's meant to be understand, understood by everyone, no matter where they're at on their journey. So that's awesome. I have a quick side question on water. I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on this. So for those people that live in the areas where they have well water, I have heard the argument that well water is cleaner because it's so far down in the ground and blah, blah, blah. It, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I would say they both have issues, well water and municipal tap water. So well water is really has its own problems in the sense that there's no required depth uh, for most properties in terms of how deep those wells have been put in and often they're grandfathered in. In other words, people buy property after property and they don't really, there's no ability or, or requirement to take those wells deeper or to put in a new well, number one. Number two, soil is incredibly absorbent. So you can have a chemical spill 30 miles away and still make its way into that well because the well doesn't have any blocking situation. It's basically, you know, managing big rocks perhaps, but it's not sifting through the types of chemical compounds and their size to delineate which ones are toxic and which ones are fine. Um, and so and wells are not required for any type of testing and on a yearly basis, on, an, on a semi-annual basis, especially, you know, when it's important to test such as after floods or tornadoes and natural disasters, any chemical spills. And so they're only required to be tested before uh, a person sells the property and someone else buys it. That could be 10, 20, 30 years. Um, so when they do test, they only test for maybe a dozen or so chemicals. So then you have a problem there. And so what I recommend for people who have wells, just like for people with water treatment plant, you know, public water is always filter at the point of use, which can also be this reverse osmosis water system or a pitcher filter or even a combination of both. The idea is that you're cleaning the water after it gets into your home. So no matter where it comes from, they're both got issues, but when you get it to your home, that's where you have this real ability to clean the water that goes into your body, into the body of your pets and your children. And um, and and like I said, that that contraption that's now used to be expensive. They used to be a thousand dollars, seven hundred reverse osmosis that are good and very well rated on Consumer Reports or NSF. Um, and we talk about it. You can get one for as low as two seventy five on sale. Wow. That's amazing. <laughs> I always love letting my my audience and my clients know that there are ways to live a non-toxic or a lower toxic lifestyle that's affordable, you know? So right. I think that's an, ex most people kind of feel that it's the old way is, is oh, I can't get organic food or mm -hmm. I can't, you know, I have no access. But in fact, they're not even as, as, you know, more expensive anymore. If you're buying flash frozen organic produce from major big box stores, you know, ShopRite, Target, you know, Stop and Shop, they all have their own organic lines now. And USDA organic, when that is a, a stamp, and we actually have a whole section on that in the book, teaching people how to read labels, what the label should look like, where they should be placed on the, on the product and what that means to be placed in certain areas. 
if it's USDA organic, then by law, which has the only, it's kind of the only law we have that has teeth in this country, pretty much for anything that has to do with environmental health, that means something. And those are accessible now through big box stores at much more reasonable prices than they used to be. Yeah, absolutely. Even stores like Aldi, which, you know, is a very cheap store, they have so many organic options. And I've actually found that the berries are because I'm I love strawberries and I am very picky about strawberries and I have this thing against Driscoll strawberries. This is <laughs> I'm not trying to attack a brand or anything, but I I feel like they're just not as juicy and whatever. So I'm like, okay, I'm gonna go to all these different stores and try to find the best strawberries. And I found you should them make a at- blog on that. Yeah, you should <laughs> write a should. blog on that. That's a really great specific journey. And I like that. Yes, so specific. And I found delicious strawberries at Aldi and they were dirt cheap. Dirt cheap. Yeah. So I'm like, there are no excuses. Yeah. Um, I wanna take a little shift here, if that's okay, and talk about adolescents and teenagers because in your book, this uh, section really stood out to me in that you developed a program where you went into high schools and you found that these students were very, very interested. Can you share a little bit about your work you did with high schoolers and adolescents? Yeah, I mean, I had done a lot of work with doctors and I'd gone in to do a lot of lectures for major hospital institutions, you know, their intensive care unit doctors, their family practice doctors, their neonatologists. And there wasn't a lot of interest over reducing these chemicals that are in their populations. I just didn't feel that it was overwhelming. Um, and there's lots of chemicals in, in plastics in, in hospital systems. There wasn't a lot of interest in swapping those out when there are certainly good organizations that can do it as nonprofits. So I was rather frustrated after a couple years of doing this. And then finally, I was in my kitchen paying my babysitter when she was leaving. And she kind of turned to me and said, you know, boy, I'm, I did, you know, she knew what I was doing in terms of, you know, some of my work. But she said, you know, I wonder if my shampoo is toxic. What do you think of this brand? And a kind of a light bulb went off. And I realized that there's this whole demographic of young people who really want this information and really should have this information, not just because they want it and they really feel like what what they put on and in around their bodies matters, but I should teach them why it matters. And also the fact that many of the chemicals that are harmful are in many personal care products. And so the personal care products can contain phthalates and fragrance, which hundreds of chemicals, parabens, sulfites, but other colors and mercury and lead in some of these products just to kind of keep the the bacterial count down. So there's just so much information. And because teenagers use the most personal care products daily of any demographic in society, these folks are really could have an opportunity to move the market in terms of safer choices. And so when I went into schools to figure out if they were even interested, I was I was kind of like winging it. 
but I came up with two different pilot projects over a couple of years just to figure it out. And it was overwhelming for both of them that they wanted this information. Um, they wanted to know which chemical, which cosmetics to buy, which ones had less chemicals uh, or that were harmful. They wanted to have opportunities to look up their products. And I give them all of those websites in the book um, and in the classroom. And what's also important is the chemicals which we're talking about, which are called endocrine disrupting chemicals or EDCs. Um, which have been discovered. I mean, this is not me discovering them. This is a world, world, uh, international world of, of uh, information through many, many um, high profile World Health Organization groups, uh, the American Academy of Pediatrics, the Endocrine Society, uh, American Academy of Obstetricians, Gynecologists. There are position papers from all of these groups and reports and medical journal articles in the thousands that talk about these endocrine disrupting chemicals, which are in our products. And what's in key to know is that we are very vulnerable to these chemicals because they mimic hormones in the human body. The endocrine system is filled with hormones, right? We have organ, you know, organs that thyroid is an is a um, a uh, endocrine gland. Um, so thyroid hormone, these chemicals can disrupt fertility. Um, chemicals that come from our ovaries and our testes and all of those, um, you know, reproductive chemicals can be disrupted by endocrine disruptors um, and synthetic chemicals. So, you know, growth and development, brain development, you know, um, newborn baby boys can be um, affected in terms of their exposures to phthalates, which are big class of chemicals that are in products. And so also talking to pregnant women, but realizing that there's these these vulnerable windows of human development from in utero exposure to toddlers to adolescents, where we have tons of hormones surging, of course, all the way through to menopause. And these vulnerable windows, which are really um, dramatic with their hormonal changes, is a way, is a window in which these chemicals may have the greatest effect. And so getting to high school students is not only a matter of moving the market, helping them to choose better, safer products, but it's also to say, listen, I want you not to be sick for your future. If you want to have kids, I want you to have kids. Let's take this component away from your life. Um, if you're going to have um, any chronic health conditions, metabolic, insulin issues, obesity, all of these chemicals are contributors to uh, the development of those diseases. And if you have all those exposures, then you just wanna make sure that you're choosing better products so that you don't have that overwhelming amount, including feminine care products, which I think a lot of people don't think about. But tampons and that tissue in the vaginal canal is absolutely so absorptive that if you're spraying chemicals with perfumes, you're using tampons with chlorine, uh, antimicrobials, which are um, you know endocrine disruptors as well. If you're putting that inside your body, you're also absorbing them much more quickly than even the skin. It's crazy. Totally crazy. But the good news is there are better products out there. And <laughs> Absolutely. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't create a book and I don't post on my platform, which is called The Smart Human, The Smart Human on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram and the podcast I have, The Smart Human. I don't post or write about things that don't have a solution. And I believe the solution is reasonable, you know, and not yeah. overwhelming, not cost prohibitive. You know, I believe that you don't present something scary unless you can safely say that there's a great or reasonable um, solution. Um, so that's really how I what I believe, because fear for fear's sake only stunts people from being empowered 
from doing good good things, from changing out things, from keeping going on this journey. And so I really want people to not feel overwhelmed, which is why it's a guidebook. I want people to feel that they can jump in when they're ready. Totally. Yeah. I'm trying to do the same with just empowering people and meeting them where they're at. And Absolutely. sometimes I do have to check myself and think they might, people might not know this information yet. And I need to be cognizant of that. Again, like I sometimes worry about, oh, well, if I'm talking about these chemicals, like, do I sound too much like I'm preaching? And it's just something I'm trying to be mindful of. And I don't think I'm coming across that way, but I, I really have to remind myself that for years, people have, you know, lived their whole life, not knowing about these things and and right. it's not their fault. So, right. Yeah. Right. It's a journey. And, um, and I think that, you know, look, the more you know, the more it feels commonplace to talk about it. And so you have to catch yourself. I have to catch myself having done medicine for 20 years as a rheumatologist and now knowing all of the language, both at sort of the deep medical language that I have to talk to doctors about all the way to sort of middle schoolers and teaching middle schoolers about the most basics of what they put in on and around their bodies and to be thoughtful and kind of understand that. It's all the same information, it's just how it's presented. And I think that's kind of the trick is to do it in a way that doesn't scare people off. Definitely, and the response from the, the teenagers and the adolescents when you were going in and putting on these uh, talks or this program, wasn't it extremely positive and extremely positive and to the point where I'm now trying to put together a very broad program with the local university and all the local high schools so that we can sort of create a program that um, where one educates the other. So it, it's still in the works. Wow. These are very costly projects, um, um, but I believe that it will get done eventually. And um, and it's really based on what I constantly hear from young people, not just high school, but college and in their 20s. I hear from women who are trying to get pregnant. Um, I, I hear from all different groups that have autoimmune disease. Why am I sick? Why am I so young and being sick? And why do I have no family members with this illness? You know, this is what's happening is that people are actually getting sicker um, and even getting sicker younger, which which was never the case. We usually sort of had a threshold that we we envisioned we wouldn't get sick until we're old because we kind of lived our lives. And that's actually not what's happening epidemiologically. We're seeing younger people with autoimmune diseases, people who've never had a family member with the same disease, cancers that have never come out, you know, been part of a family line. So it's one of those things where I wanted to go straight to people, people through the Smart Human platform, post Monday, Wednesday, Friday on all little nuggets of things that matter to people. Um, And I wanted to go straight towards my patients. And I didn't want to wait for doctors to get this information to share with their patients because they may not, or they may not have the time or desire or the ability to answer questions. So it was really, you know, let's just get straight to the people it matters. And um, the guidebook does that. I have a, a textbook that is really meant for doctors, but anyone in the healthcare field is a much deeper dive, much more science-based, has 26 contributing authors uh, that are specialists in all of their fields. Um, But I encourage more so even doctors to pick this one up because this is the one that actually is the language they're going to speak to to their patients and to their families um, about. So it has to be easy or else people are going to be overwhelmed. 
Yeah, no, and you're definitely providing so much informative content and resources and that that's really how change begins. It's just by putting this content out there and thank goodness one of the positive sides of technology and social media is that this can really blow up in a way. It's very exponential. So right. I'm very excited about your program that you're developing for universities and high schools. Um, so definitely keep me informed about that. Well, yeah, it's going to take a little bit of uh, money and a little muscle, but I think eventually it'll get done and it's got to be designed well to su- to succeed. So, yeah, there's a lot with politics and it, it's it's a bigger, bigger uh, hurdle than I thought. But that's my mission, as you see with the TED Talk. Um, my mission is is to get this into the hands of people who it matters most to. Yeah, and you're doing just that. And also that textbook is going to be the next book I read. <laughs> Oh, oh gosh. Well, make sure you have a glass of organic wine when you do so, because it's it's, it's heavy, deep, it's deep reading, but it's actually, it, it really explains a lot of those connections, not causation, but association between exposures to certain chemicals and how it lowers your ability, your, it raises your risk and uh, f- to develop certain diseases that are mostly endocrine, but also immune system, because these aren't siloed systems, human parts of our body. The endocrine system is messengers. It's it's chemicals. Hormones are chemicals, messengers, and they have everything to do with cancer development and autoimmune disease uh, and immune disorders because these systems all. So it's really important that, you know, when you give up something like, you know, uh, air, fra- you know, fragrance or perfume, or you swap out nonstick pans for stainless steel, all good things, get rid of plastic Tupperware, all of those things add up, hopefully, to reduce risk for cancers and all these health conditions. Yeah, it's so true. Well, on on this theme of books, I like to close my podcast by asking my guests their favorite slash top book that changed their life. Can you share one book that has changed your life or that you love? A book that's changed my well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you my most recent reading that I happen to really love because I can't, I'm too old to remember all the books that I mean, I used to love the <laughs> books in high school, but I can't even remember any of them. But I really like Sapiens. Um, and that. that, yeah, it's uh, Yuval Harari. It's a bestseller. It's just remarkable to look at. I love evolution and anthropology. It plays into everything I do in terms of chemicals and how we have all these chemicals. So recently in our evolution of 4.5 million years, these are really important perspectives. And I think pull yourself out of the world you live in to kind of get a broader exposure to our, our whole history of evolution. And he does this so beautifully with sapiens. I think it's um, I think it really changes a lot of how you look at life. Certainly not sweating the small stuff. That's for sure. (laughs) Awesome. Well, I'm going to put that one on my list as well. Well, the the last thing we should share is letting our audience know where they can find you. I know you mentioned a little bit about it, but let's remind everyone where they can find you. So I practice medicine in Princeton, New Jersey. Um, But I see patients from around the world through telemedicine, which has really changed the playing field in terms of getting second opinions and consults and that kind of stuff. So, you know, people can always reach out. My website for my practice is um, Ailey Cohen. 
MD.com, A-L-Y-C-O-H-E-N-M-D.com. But I hope people will really follow on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, uh, the smart, the smart human, and even listen to the podcast that I started, which has lots of environmental health guests, doctors, researchers, lawyers, just really cool perspective on exposures and reduction of, of, of disease. Um, but I post regularly. I try to keep it fun. Um, and I really hope people will just follow because it's done in a way that's sort of one idea. What's the issue? What's the solution? So it's very simple and not not meant to freak anyone out. So please follow the smart human. Awesome. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for being here today and chatting. I feel like we could keep going on for hours and hours, but unfortunately, we are at time. Thanks again. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Heidi. It was wonderful. 